Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome. I'm uh, Oriana Bandiera, as she says there. I'm a professor of economics and director of Stickard here at the LSE. And I'm very honored to be here tonight to celebrate two of the greatest economists that the LSE has had, which is Arthur Lewis, after whom this chair is named, and Tim Besley, who's the first person to hold the Arthur Lewis chair. Um, both Tim and Arthur Lewis have very strong connections with the school. Arthur Lewis studied here, both his BSc and his PhD, revealing great taste. And then he went on working at the LSE, and then he went to Princeton via Manchester. Tim, a couple of generations later, did the opposite route. He started his first job at Princeton, then I think he skipped Manchester, but in the end, reasons prevailed, and uh, in 1995, he joined the LSE and has been here since. Now, besides the connection that they have with the school, Tim and Arthur Lewis have many things in common. The first and the most obvious to everybody is that they're immensely successful. Whether you count it by number of papers, number of books, uh, prizes, journals that they edit, is always the top of the list. And that you know. The second thing that you might not know quite as much is that they're successful in a number of fields, often very disparate fields. So Arthur Lewis started as an industrial organization person. That's what he was studying at the LSC. It's only when he went to Manchester that he st started doing research in development economics, and that's what won him the Nobel Prize. He was also, maybe not quite as known, an economic historian, and he was excellent in all three disciplines. Tim started as a public economics person, actually did years and years in public economics. Then he added onto that development, and then onto that he added political economy. And today he will tell us why he thought that he should keep adding things and making break, uh, breakthroughs in all, all of them. Um, the third thing that makes them really similar, I think is the most important, is the reason why their work is so influential. And in order to explain that, I'm going to tell you a story of how I came to understand it, why these papers are so special. Now, when I joined the LSE a long time ago now, uh, I was lucky enough to have Tim as my mentor. And one day, in one of our first meetings, I went to his office with some random idea. I thought it was a great research question, probably wasn't that great. But Tim was always very kind, and he told me, no, no, it's a great idea. Great ideas are great. Great research questions are great. But again, a research question is only as great as his answer, and vice versa. And I was looking at him and taking notes, saying, sooner or later I'll understand this. And then he said, you know, I can have 10 great research questions before breakfast, but it's only the way I execute them that makes a difference, and it's the execution that takes time. And I was there taking notes. So this had two implications for me. In the very short run, it completely messed up my eating habits. They weren't great to start with, but with this pressure of having to have 10 ideas, maybe five, maybe two, before breakfast, I was having porridge at around 8 p.m. It's not great. Um, I haven't improved much since. The, the second thing, which is that I finally understood what he meant, that a paper is only as great as its greatest part. And in economics, we have very many papers that have really, really good answers, very technical, very detailed, very careful, Two very, very small questions. Then there is also the opposite. You have big questions, important things, and very careless answers. It's only the papers that have the greatest questions and the most careful answers that become very influential. And these are the type of papers that Arthur Lewis wrote 
the um, development paper with unlimited supplies of labor is probably one of the most cited and most influential papers of all times. And this is the type of papers that Tim writes. So now I think I've set your expectations at about the right level. So I will let Tim tell you how he got to do all the brilliant things that he does. Well, uh, thank, you, thank you very much, Ariana, for that touching introduction. And I'd, the only thing I would like to say is I'd like to claim, therefore, a piece of your success if I was uh, uh, encouraging you to eat your porridge later and later in the day. Uh, it was obviously a good recipe for your own career. I, I wish I could remember that I'd, I'd done that. I'm going to talk about um, this title. It's quite a, I'm going to give, give a quite an academic uh, lecture at some level. I'm going to talk about research, what economists do, and what they've tried to say about a range of issues, particularly issues that I've seen develop in my uh, professional career. I mean, I'm getting to a point in life where I'm looking for all the benefits from getting older, and um, one of them is I can actually look back and see trends in things I've studied and the way they've evolved um, in a way that when you begin, um, you can't really do that. So, so I'm going to take you on a bit of a journey that is partly autobiographical, and we'll, t we'll talk about things I learned and and, and things I, I, I got involved in, in studying uh, and the influences upon that and, 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 uh, and, the, uh, and, and, and this journey towards studying the political economy of, of development. Um, but we're here to celebrate um, Arthur Lewis. Um, I noticed one thing I have in common with him is that we have the same shaped glasses, I think. Um, uh, but I'd like to think there was, uh, that, that he was an inspirational uh, figure uh, for me. Um, when, when I was first taught development economics, um, I was taught in Oxford, and the first thing um, that we, we all were, were asked to do was to read Arthur Lewis's paper. There was a notion that you should go out there and read all of the classics. When we learned macroeconomics, we were given a copy of Keynes' general theory. It was that kind of approach. And so I, I encountered Arthur Lewis almost at the very beginning of, of studying development. And, uh, and from his paper, uh, his, his classic paper on, on unlimited supplies of labor, I think we all got a perspective of what the process of development was about. And I'll say a little bit more about that in, in, in a moment. I think the thing that people need to be reminded about Arthur Lewis is he was very much, I think, a mainstream economist. Uh, that's going to be an important part of the message because I'm going to talk about how economics received his ideas and how economics has developed as a subject. But I think that sometimes people want to sort of paint some figures as a kind of counterculture, but he was far from it. I mean, after all, he, he won the Nobel Prize in economics, so he was anointed by probably what is considered the, the most prestigious award that can be given out in our profession. Uh, but he won it because he influenced economists in a very traditional way. And that was by developing a particular kind of economic model that proved to be a very powerful narrative for thinking about the process of development. And that remains to this day the way our discipline operates. It operates around a series of narratives articulated in economic models. And if you want to in influence the discipline of economics in the way he did, you have to provide a new and compelling narrative that will guide the subject. And that's exactly what he did in the way he approached the issues uh, in the early part of his career. And I'll say I'll come back a little bit in, in, in to, to that in a moment. So what am I going to talk about? I'm going to give you a quite subjective assessment of, of political economy in development. Uh, and, and it will give me an opportunity for those of you who are, who are not familiar with things that have happened in our discipline in the last 25 years um, 
to talk about some of those developments and why I think they're exciting and fruitful developments. Um, and in particular, I want to talk about the way the field of political economy as it's emerged within the discipline has had, I think, uh, quite an effect on the way we approach development policy uh, uh, and, and, and development problems. I think it, in a sort of back, back text, which I want to mention up front, is that a lot of people will who don't know economics, who maybe have just taken one course or taken one lesson at some, some point, or, or whatever, don't appreciate just how much the profession changes. They think of this being a very stagnant thing. And I think the way political economy both came into economics in the early 90s and the way it's infused the discipline is really quite contrary to the view that economists are, in a sense, stuck in their ways. There are really very profound changes in the way they have, for example, been with the, with the way behavioral economics has come into our discipline. We are, economics is actually a very dynamic discipline to those inside. It may look very static to those outside. And, and, and I want to talk a little bit about why I think that happened. Why were economists so keen to really fundamentally change the way they think about issues? And what, 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 what was it um, that, that provoked that? And Almost everything I'm going to talk about today um, is um, from what I call the post-Lewis era. And I can, I can if I speak personally, I, I sort of know that's true because I know the first day I ever did anything which resembled political economy. And it happened, I'll tell you a story a bit, a bit later, it was, happened to be the day that Rajiv Gandhi was assassinated when I was in India. Uh, and I just looked up the dates and Arthur Lewis died um, about two weeks after Rajiv Gandhi was assassinated. So I know that pretty much everything I've been uh, involved in in political economy is a post-Arthur Lewis phenomenon. Um, and uh, I, I say there is a particular story why I know it was that day, um, and I'll, I'll come back to that a, a little later. So I'm going to start by reflecting on, 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 and this is a phrase that Paul Krugman once uh, used in a, in a well-known paper. He wrote, The Fall and Rise of, of Development Economics Within Mainstream Economics. I want to discuss the field of political economy and uh, its rise in mainstream economics and then look at a few case studies to illustrate why I think it's had a quite profound effect on the way that we think about some issues. So what do I mean about the, the fall and, and rise of, uh, of development economics? Um, well, the field of development um, in its modern guise really does begin with Arthur Lewis. Uh, I think if you look back and say where was the first seminal contribution that, that created a recognizable sub-discipline of development economics, it probably most people would say it was around that paper. I mean, there were other contributions besides, but it would certainly be one of those that almost everybody would cite. Um, but it's fair to say that while there were many people then who, who took up um, the role of, um, of developing ideas in, de in development, and I'll talk about a few of them in a, in a moment, um, I would fa it's fair to say that development was not always in the mainstream of our discipline. Uh, and, uh, I mean, a personal example to illustrate that is when I... So, so, so for those of you not familiar, there's, there's something called a, a job market in economics, which means when you get your PhD, you go out there and you put yourself out there and hopefully get a, get a job at, at, a, at a suitable institution. And uh, I, I was... Um, I 
studied all the time in the UK. I was very unfamiliar with, this, with the job market, particularly the US version of it. And I was told under no conditions should I describe myself as a development economist because that would basically be guarantee I couldn't possibly get a job at a leading institution. Now, I think that advice was probably excessively pessimistic, um, but that it was true. If you looked around the major, certainly American economic firms, I think it was less, much less true in the UK at the time, LSE, certainly had people active in the field. Um, Warwick and Oxford uh, certainly had people in, in other places. But it was true that if you looked at, took the temperature of what is that behemoth that's, that's the American economics profession, it was really didn't even recognize, or almost didn't recognize, development as a field, which is quite odd if you think about the fact that Arthur Lewis had himself been at Princeton. And Princeton was an exception, by the way. He built a program called the Research Program in Development Studies. But many other institutions really didn't take development as a field particularly seriously. There was a big debate that had gone on, and I think was not in the end that helpful, although it sort of resurfaced, which is, should the economics of development be any different from any other kind of economics? Or was the problem of studying economic development just applying the economic tools from the rest of economics to the particular challenges of development? And certainly when I was taught development, which was in Oxford in the, in the mid-1980s, there were almost two groups of development economists, those who really felt that they should be teaching a special kind of economics with particular insights, and those who were more what you might describe as the mainstream economists who were trying to teach it from a, from a different kind of perspective. Um, what were the kinds of themes that I learned in that time? I think the, the theme of Lewis was very central. Is there something called dualism? Is there something specific about the development of, of traditional sectors or the distinctive institutional arrangements which you could think of as creating a particular challenge for both policy and were themselves both a symptom and cause of, of poverty? And the policy challenges that people looked at in that, in that literature as I first absorbed it were very much around how to change the distribution of capital, in particular the global distribution, how to get investment, and uh, how to improve policy through cost-benefit analysis and both identifying and correcting market failures. These were, these were themes uh, among those who, who, whose work I was reading and, and being influenced by at the time. And in fact, here some of them are. These are the people whose work I was reading in the 1980s and who were very much keeping the whole field of development. And some of you will be looking up there, and I can see only one who's in the audience, Nick. You're up on the, on the right. Nick Stern was among them. And these were the people who were writing the contributions that I was reading in the 80s uh, and were really, uh, uh, in a way, the, the, the people who had kept the, Lewis's flame alive in many ways, um, and a lot of these people, had, it's not, I don't think it's a coincidence, had spent quite long uh, periods of their career in, 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 the, in the UK because I think Britain was particular in, in having a much stronger tradition in development economics than, uh, than, than, the, than the US. So there was a lot of work going on. It was all quite exciting. And when I look at this particular collection of, of people, I guess I should go through and give you all the names, but that's a, I'll leave you to work out who many of them are. There are several... Well, not several. There's certainly three, four, uh, four Nobel laureates in there. Um, no, three, three Nobel laureates in there, um, and uh, uh, actually four now, if I count Angus. Sorry, I was right the first time. Um, and uh, uh, they, they were very much, as I say, keeping keeping the field uh, moving at the time. What was 
sort of progress in development at the time, it was talking about um, infant industry arguments and knowledge spillovers and the case for proactive trade policy. Um, there were streams of research on bringing microdata, particularly understanding how households were behaving um, and how were they accumulating human capital, collection of types of data, understanding household behavior. And then there was a whole stream of work on understanding um, what we might call microeconomic institutions. A good example would be thinking about how people engaged in agriculture were getting access to credit, what kinds of relationships did they have with landlords. A lot of this was the, really an exciting area at the time, which many of the people uh, on the previous slide were, were working on and powered the field forward. Um, behind all this, and if you'd asked me in the 1980s when I... When I um, uh, uh, graduated with my PhD, what I would be spending my career doing. It was very much what is listed on this slide. I thought the problem of development, and I thought what I would be doing for the next uh, uh, phase of my career, would be to find ways of, of identifying the sources of the problems which kept economies poor, uh, whether they were institutional problems or problems of market failure, then thinking about how we could design the best possible government interventions to correct those problems or improve upon those problems. We would then need to collect information to design the policies that we needed. And we would go out there and we would collect data from households or firms or whatever it took. And then we would work with government on implementing those policies. So this is a very stylized representation. But I thought this was where everything should be, and it's because I've been schooled, as, as Oriana said, in a particular tradition of public economics in, in Britain, which was very strong, which, which saw this as the way forward. And, and I think of figures like uh, Pigou and James Mead, who was also an LSE Nobel laureate, and James Merlis, Nobel laureate but not at, uh, at the LSE, were the core figures who were really developing a whole paradigm of policy analysis that seemed to be the powerful tools that we needed. And I thought, well, I will spend my career chipping away at a few of these issues and hopefully make progress on, on some of them. And many of the people whose work I put up on the slide earlier were indeed part of, of, of this exercise. And I thought that's, that's more than a career's worth of, of, uh, of challenges here. But I guess I sort of slightly uh, found myself losing the faith, if you want to put it that way. Uh, in a very concrete sense, and uh, I'll tell you the first time I, I, I questioned my faith, was when I arrived at Princeton, which was my first job, and Ariana mentioned that, um, uh, someone who subsequently became a very good friend of mine, is a good friend of, 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 of a lot of people uh, who've worked in this area, Avinash Dixit, asked me, well, what are you interested in? And I said, I'm interested in development. And he sort of shook his head and tuttered and said, well, you know, I was once interested in development, but I realized all of the problems of development were essentially political. So I decided economists had no place in the field, and therefore I would leave. And being Avinash and a very determined person, he promptly exited the field of development, although he came back to it later. Um, that was a pretty uh, disturbing thing to hear for someone who thought in the paradigm that I just described to you. Um, and it's true, around the same time, I had an internship at the, at the World Bank and a very powerful figure, actually one who was earlier on that slide, Anne Kruger, uh, who'd been a pioneer of the view that, that really, if you looked at the reality of government intervention in some parts of the world, not everywhere, but in some parts of the world, there was evidence of corruption and rent-seeking. And 
They also traded at that time, this was the 80s, still off the memory of the rather traumatic period of economic policy making in the 70s, where people were critical of many of the, the policy interventions that, 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 uh, that some countries had undertaken, so it had been a period of instability. So there was beginning to be a question around the model. Was the model of benevolent government really a helpful model or not? I actually happen to believe even now that it's an incredibly helpful model but it's not quite helpful in the way I thought it was at the time uh, that I, I first really uh, was learning it. The watchwords then became words like government failure. You know, well, it's all right to identify problems of markets. It's all right to define problems of institutions, but what about the problems of government? How do we think about those, and how do we put them up against the problems of markets? What, what's the right framework, and do we have the, the tools? And so very much then the focus is going to become what explains the performance of government? We have to say, when does government work? When does government not work? We need some tools. We need to be able to think about uh, those issues. And um, arguably, at the time, you'd say that needed a new body of knowledge because among economists, these were not things which at least when I was brought up as, as an economist, we, we talked about very much. They were things which were thought of, I'm sure, by some who were involved in the policy process, but they were not things that were taught in any way, shape, or form in the curriculum of economics as I, as I studied it. So the question is, was, that, is, was there anything new under, under the sun? Because from the early 90s, there was, I think, the beginnings of a feeling among a group of economists that we, re we really needed to develop some new tools of analysis to be able to look systematically at these issues. Um, now, if we think about the term political economy, it's itself a bit problematic. Uh, and some people have tried to invent different terminology within economics. So some people talk about political economics rather than political economy. I personally prefer the term political economy. It kind of trips off the tongue better, but I haven't any other particular defense for that. Um, but the term is confusing because if you go back to the 19th century, what we call economics today was often just called political economy. There was really no distinction between the two. But it's come to be understood, I think, in the modern sense to really mean analyses which take politics and economics together in a serious way. Um, that's the way I want you to understand the term now. But, of course, bringing the two disciplines of politics and economics together ran counter to the long uh, divorce, if you want to think of that, that had been going on in the social sciences, where economics had been trying to establish itself as a really separate branch of the social sciences, and to some extent trying to define itself as not uh, uh, politics and not sociology or whatever. So there had been a long period in which economics had tried to develop quite separately from other social sciences. Now, that said, there were movements, and at the time, even at that point in economics, which had tried to bring um, uh, economics and politics together. And there were two particular schools of thought. There was what the so-called Virginia School um, around uh, Buchanan and Tullock, and there was a Chicago School around people like Becker and Peltzman and Stigler that had been developing such ideas, um, but they hadn't really found their way into the, into the mainstream. And only to a limited degree had they found themselves into uh, mainstream development. So they certainly were not part of what I studied when I studied development economics at the t back in the, in the 80s. Now, there were exceptions. I remember very well being sent off to the library to read a series of studies by Jagdish Bhagwati and Ann Kruger on the consequences of trade protectionism 
um, looking at that from the perspective of the rent-seeking incentives and other kinds of incentives that they would create. And that was work that was available, certainly at the time I was originally studying development. But by and large, there was no central corpus of knowledge which you could identify within mainstream economics as the political economy of development. That wasn't a field or a, a body of, of literature in the way it is now that we could identify at the time. Who are some of the pioneers in, in political economy? Uh, there are these figures up here. Unlike the previous uh, slide, uh, I, I don't know most of these characters. The one I got to know very well, indeed, was the, the late, great Mansur Olsen here, uh, who was a wonderful, uh, wonderful man, died, died far too young. And the last correspondence I had with Mansur before he died was um, he, uh, he had written a book which came out posthumously. And he knew, Mansur knew all about real politics, and he knew that if he sent out his book to, um, for comment, um, nobody would reply. We're all too busy. So what he did was he sent around a manuscript of his book with a, a check made out to you for $100. And he said, you may cash this check only if you send me comments on my book. Um, and apparently he got a very good response. Uh, I don't know how many people cashed the check. Um, but, uh, but I remember, and then before, before uh, he'd really taken all the comments on board, sadly, he passed away. But Mansa was a, 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 the person on this list I knew best. I did, I did meet James Buchanan over there once, um, and I, went to, I was invited to his 93rd birthday party, can you believe? Um, and uh, he, he, to my great surprise, he start, I started talking to him. Uh, I, to my great surprise, he knew who, A, he knew who I was, and B, he knew what I'd written. And uh, all he said to me was, yes, I've read some of your work. Uh, <laughs> and that was it. Uh, anyway, you're a great man, great man. Um, there we go. Uh, so um, Virginia and, and Chicago political economy had a sort of broad tenet to it, I think, a sort of defining set of uh, issues. And that was that they thought the guys who'd been developing a model about governments fixing market failures and doing all the good things in, in the world was to some extent um, a, an excessively optimistic view of government intervention. There was a definite sort of slant on the whole um, project. And they would, essentially it was an exercise in identifying what you could call distortions in the policy process, which economists who had their benevolent perspective were ignoring. So it became very much a kind of a counterculture um, uh, within, within economics, and they would discuss problems of log rolling in legislatures, um, regulatory capture. If you try to regulate an industry, are the people you're regulating just going to lobby back and therefore effectively capture the, the regulatory institutions? Were, were policymakers going to become subject to pressure group influence? There was a whole series of discussions around the distortions that could happen in the policy process that by and large, they argued, economists were ignoring. That was kind of the, if you read their literature, the literature of that time, that was roughly the message that you, you were given to take away from that. Um, now, there's a couple of things about, about that. I mean, one, one is, and, and this is, for me, the most striking thing, is if you look at, say, Buchanan's work, which essentially is of this kind, I mean, he was very critical of the case for government intervention being made by economists. Um, it was largely a critique of what you might say are the most... Uh, uh, um, the most uh, proclaimed or most supported political institutions that we have, the American uh, Constitution or the advanced uh, democracies of, of Western Europe, he was critiquing them. 
Now, for anyone who studies development, it seems rather an odd place to start if you're going to create a critique of government um, to, to look at the countries where government operates comparatively well. If you really want to think about the problems of government, you would go to places where government really doesn't work at all. But that was not the focal point of this literature at all. They were not that interested in problems of government in the kinds of places I'm going to be talking about from now on, namely the poorer and, uh, uh, and, and well, the developing world broadly defined. Now, what is the sort of broad connection I want to get into now? Why do we think that... Um, uh, political institutions matter for long-run prosperity. Um, something that I think a lot of people who've studied these issues now believe. And the things that come up in that discussion are very obvious things, I think, that um, institutions create a framework in which property rights can be enforced. That's a very big part of the literature. Um, in which the state can credibly commit, for example, not to appropriate the returns to investment or to tax investment in a punitive fashion. And Douglas North, another Nobel laureate and economic historian, really made his career to some extent out of arguing that if you look at the rise of the West in a broadly defined sense, it was a lot around the successes in making government able to commit to um, allowing markets to function in a, in a uh, tolerably efficient way. But there are other areas like designing infrastructure strategies. You know, we need government that can both identify how to spend money wisely and then to deliver through on those expenditures. Those are all problems of understanding the incentives of government to deliver on what we want government to do. Institutions also are important because they affect distribution of income and redistribution of income. And in particular, the way in which ruling elites behave or recognize their obligation to weaker members of society is critical in understanding how government redistributes uh, or distributes resources. And that in particular, and I'm going to return to this a little bit later, has a bearing on the nature of conflict in society. I mean, one of the things that's come out very much as a part of the political economy literature has been to worry a lot more about um, the role of conflict in affecting the path of development. Um, there are many data sets that you can use to look at long-run institutional development. I'm just going to um, kind of give you some big facts that, that spend, we spend a lot of time worrying about, perhaps too much time worrying about. Um, but but uh, there are sort of two, if you, if you say if we want to look at the history of political development in, in a simple way, what might we look at? Well, there are two trends and you'll see them in a, in, a, in a graph in a minute, that I think more than anything else typify the process that the world has been through in the last 150 years. Um, the first is an increase in what, what I'll call the openness of access to power, the contestability of power. How easy is it for somebody to either stand for election or be voted in? Um, if you think back to 1875, which is when my data is going to start in a minute, the very large number of countries were, had some form of hereditary rule in which it was next to impossible for anybody to enter the political system without having some kind of uh, uh, hereditary background, or at least it helped a lot, even if it wasn't directly relevant. Um, and then the other is on what you might call the constraints over the use of power, what I'm going to use the terminology executive constraints. And if you think back, last year was the um, anniversary of Magna Carta, uh, was one of the first documents in the history of the world to try and stipulate a process of constraint on government 
uh, albeit in a very particular environment of, of, uh, of the UK at a particular point in its history. But the general story has been one in which if you look over time, it's, there's less and less ability of rulers to hold office without being subject to, to constraints. What kinds of constraints? Well, two mainly. Constraints imposed by the need to persuade legislatures to go along with their decisions. You know, so votes in legislatures are an enormously powerful, potentially powerful form of restraint on executive authority. And there are many ways to subvert legislatures and uh, rulers have throughout history tried to find such ways and sometimes the rights of legislatures to uh, discipline rulers have been, have been upheld but other times not. And the other is the legal system. To what extent is it true that rulers are themselves subject to the law? They make the law at some level, but are they also are they subject to it? And that's what goes into what I'm going to call executive constraints. I think it's very unhelpful, and I hope by the end of this uh, uh, lecture you'll agree with me, because if not, I'll have failed rather miserably. Uh, it, it, it's important to keep these two dimensions rather separate. And one of the problems in the political economy of development literature, I think, has been the tendency to want to put them together in a single index, which people will often call democracy. Well, what is, which of these is democracy? The one that's most recognizable is the openness of access to power. Does a country have free and fair elections? Now, of course, that can be important. But I would argue if you look through history and look through the kind of examples that are coming out of the political economy literature that I have been involved in, developing is actually constraints over the use of power that are actually rather more important than the conduct of elections. But I'll have to persuade you of that. You don't have to take that on trust. But therefore, the tendency to want to elide those together and to call those something democracy, and I've been guilty, I say mea culpa, in the past, I, I've too readily been willing to do that. Um, for why, why is that a bad idea? Well, it's going to, I hope you, again, by the, the end of it. One, well, one reason it's a bad idea, the history of the world in terms of these two dimensions looks rather different. So you'll be actually studying two things which, are, which have rather different historical processes and calling them one. So the emergence of democracy is very hard to identify if you just look at it in, 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 without disaggregating. To illustrate that, this is just a graph from something called the Polity 4 database. The Polity 4 database is not the only way to look at this, but it's a very popular way to look at this among people who look at political economy. And essentially what it does is it takes every independent sovereign entity in the world uh, and scores it on the basis of its political institutions. In the two dimensions, it does it in multiple dimensions, but it does it particularly in the two dimensions I've raised. This is the index of openness which is essentially, does the country have a system of access to power based on free and fair elections? And to get the best score on this dimension, the answer has to be yes. You basically have some kind of form of regularized elections to transfer power. Now, I've graphed it for two sets of countries for a very obvious reason. I've got a set of countries that have only existed since 1875. That's quite a narrow list of countries because there are a large number of countries under colonial rule that would not have been in the polity database in that period and also countries that would have been part of what broadly defined the Soviet bloc at different points. But the bottom line story is, is, is quite clear when you look at this that if you begin in 1875, a fair, fewer than 40% of countries had anything like a, a, an open and contestable political system. That, that increases um, and then, of course, falls back rather dramatically during the period around the Second World War where many countries 
decided to abandon such institutions, it comes back up, particularly with the advent of colonialism, then drifts down, at the end, sorry, the end of colonialism, drifts down as a number of countries that were launched with open institutions actually choose not to hold elections anymore. So you actually get a fall in the fraction of countries that hold uh, open elections. And then it rises back for the countries that are in the, the original 1875 set. So that's, that's partly due to what happened in Eastern Europe after 1990. So a country like Poland, well, is it in the data set in 1875? That's a bad example. A country like Hungary would be a better example, would be in those, uh, those data. But as you see, basically by the end of the period among the established countries, those that existed in 1875, close to 90% have got um, open institutions. Uh, uh, and are therefore having the highest polity rating. What about the same thing for executive constraints? Well, the pattern looks somewhat different. First of all, there was no real rise in the period between 1875 and the, uh, the, um, uh, the, beginning, the, the, the beginning of the Second World War. The kind of golden uh, period it was actually the period in the 1920s when a large number of countries did, in fact, adopt quite strong executive constraints. It then again, like openness, falls quite a bit during the Second World War. It recovers somewhat after the Second World War, but many countries don't get uh, str the strongest score. Then it comes up uh, until around 80% of, of countries get strong executive constraints by the end of the period. There's, behind this is a bit of a sequencing, by the way. If you look at this country by country, the general pattern in history and it won't surprise you when you look at those graphs, is that most countries become open before they get the strongest executive constraints. Britain is the opposite, by the way. Britain actually gets the strongest executive constraints prior to having the universal franchise. That's an unusual development path, political development path. Um, I'm going I'm to come back to, to all of this later, but I want to plant in your mind the idea that, first of all, the pattern is rather different in the data depending on whether you look at openness or executive constraints. And the attainment of strong executive constraints in the data is rather weaker than the attainment of openness. So what are the big questions in political economy I want to, want to talk about? Um, what do people want to know the answer to? They want to know the answer to the following question. If I have a particular configuration of political institutions, is that likely to lead to a better development path? That would be a nice thing to know. And then, in theory, we could start recommending what that constellation of political institutions ought to be. And there's been a lot of time spent on trying to answer that question, I would say rather unsuccessfully. Um, but it doesn't, hasn't stopped people thinking that's a very important question to answer. Indeed, it, it is. Could we think about, therefore, in, that, in, in light of that, what are the priorities for political reform? Um, then can we say anything about how to do political reform? That's a very difficult issue still. I mean, can, even if we knew what the direction of reform we think ought to be, strengthening executive constraints, having a more independent judiciary, having stronger parliamentary oversight, whatever it would be, do we know actually how to achieve that? And more importantly, if you're sitting you know, where, where, where I do in my day job, you know, can you produce an evidence-based approach? What can we point to to engage in this debate that would allow us as analysts and as economists to come forward and say, well, we think we know the answer. You'd look at this evidence or that evidence. Um, and, and what kind of theoretical structures would be helpful also? And that, that's kind of important because I do think behind all of this, it's not just about 
the evidence and the numbers, it's also about the conceptual framework. And indeed, coming back to Lewis, one of the reasons Lewis was so powerful was he had a conceptual framework that was a very compelling framework for what he was talking about. And I think that's sort of a watchword for almost all areas of economics. You need that powerful and persuasive conceptual framework to stand behind the way you're thinking about the issue. Now, here's the big challenge. And, and, and in a sense, this is not a challenge that's unique to political economy development, but it's a challenge that's out there in economics. Looking across countries and over time, you're never going to get any simple story about causality. Uh, some people would like to believe they will, but you know, let's let's just you know between friends here, let's just agree that's not going to that's not really going to be a persuasive uh, a persuasive thing to do. Um, and in, in particular, is it really plausible to think that we might be able to say politics causes economics or economics causes politics? No, it's just really not not a very likely thing that we'd be able to reach such a, such a conclusion. So what do we have to do? What, what can we do? We, that doesn't mean we can't do something helpful. What I think we have to try and do is, is, to, is to look at the evidence and to, to do the best we can with what evidence we can find. Um, join that to what I'll call narratives via models. So think about the conceptual framework that we would use and then hopefully draw conclusions that are persuasive uh, in that process in a way that's going to allow us to um, to make, make progress. And that's for the re remaining time I have, I'm going to talk about that, although not, uh, I've got far too many slides, so you'll be pleased to hear I will skip through a lot of them. So how do we make progress? I think we make progress by getting very specific. We look at particular country experiences. We drill down to the underlying features. When you look at these broad aggregates, executive constraints, at that level, it's not that helpful. But if we begin to ask the question, how does this country organize the selection of its judiciary? What process do they have for resourcing courts and for making court decisions? What system of law do they have? And how do they train the legal profession? You begin to get into some very specific issues around how to improve the quality of executive constraints. If you ask how you select your legislators, what kind of rules does the legislature have? How can it be overridden, if at all, by an elected president? All of these issues, the nitty-gritty, detailed issues, really matter. And then you, with luck, by understanding the incentive structures embedded in the detail, you can join the micro and the macro. Um, there's a real issue here that I'm not, sadly, going to have time to talk about. I wish I had, which is how to think about this in terms of the relative importance of rules and informal norms and practices. My favorite example is a bit autobiographical, but I'll use it anyway, which is my experience um, uh, of uh, becoming a policymaker for a brief period in my, my life as a member of the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee. And um, you can read the rules. I mean, I, before I was, took up my position there, I read the rules. What do I have to do? You know, I, and the answer is you can read the rules in, you know, take your five minutes. There's virtually no rules written down. You know, the Monetary Policy Committee has to meet on a certain number of times a year. It has to make certain decisions. What's really powerful is if you're appointed to that position is all the norms and the practices. You roll up and people really begin to describe how this works. What's the voting procedure? That's not in the rules. That's something that has evolved because the governor of the bank has votes and decides on the voting process and the way in which that is done in the meetings, there's lots of details and other things. That's a metaphor for all, I think, rules-driven organizations. I'm currently a member of something called the National Infrastructure Commission, which is a new body in the UK. 
And we're just in our inception phase. And we, again, we have rules. You can read the rules. But what we're trying to do is evolve a series of informal norms and practices to make this an effective body. So to really understand institutions, it's not enough to look at the rules. You really have to begin to think about the evolved norms and, 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 and practices that go with those rules. Um, and actually, in some of the work that I'm currently doing in political economy, I'm getting very interested in how we can model and think about the dynamics of norms and practices alongside the dynamics of institutions. But I'm not going to have much time to talk about that today, but I think it's really important. So here's some of my partners in crime, a couple or more in the audience, actually. These are the people I worked with. Just now, briefly back, the first person I worked in political economy with was Anne Case. Anne happens to also be married to Angus Deaton, who is a recent Nobel laureate, but that's sort of by the by, really. Um, why do, why do I know the first time I, I ever uh, thought about political economy? I know it very well because I was um, with Anne Case at the time, and we were in India. Um, we were in India to work on a project on technology adoption, and we'd identified a very nice source of data, and we were going to go out in, on a field trip, and we were going to go and look in a, a village where some surveys were being done. And we got a call in the morning that said, sorry, um, your, trip, your, your trip has been cancelled, um, uh, Rajiv Gandhi has been assassinated and we don't think it's very safe for you to go out and you know there were riots I was in Hyderabad and there were actually riots going on in the city so please stay home it's the uh, safest thing you can do for the day and hopefully tomorrow you'll be able to make this trip um, but uh, so I, there we were uh, two, two economists uh, trapped, in, uh, trapped in a guest house in the middle of Hyderabad uh, what, what did we do? Well, we started talking about other things, and I said to Anne, what, are you, what else are you up to? And we were clearly not going to talk about technology, just talk about something else. And she said, well, I've just been asked uh, to work on this project by Marty Feldstein at the MBER, which involved looking at how different governments, in state governments in the U.S., were setting their tax policy. And she said, I think it's sort of one way to think about this is there must be some kind of cycle around the elections that are happening in the U.S. states, and surely we should be thinking about how those election incentives are affecting the tax setting. And so we spent a day um, in, in this room, and by the end of it, we, we sort of got the basic ideas behind the first paper we wrote together. Um, and I can tell you before that, it never even occurred to me that I would be interested in, in political economy. But uh, after that experience and, and working with Anne, so she was the first person, but then many of these other characters are people I've really enjoyed working through some of the ideas that... Uh, that, that I've worked on, on since. What are the key issues in political economy in general? They're not going to surprise you. They're questions about how institutions resolve conflicts of interest and in particular promote common interests. There's a really decisive moment, I think, in the political history of most countries, which is when you can firmly say that a focus on issues of genuine common interest come to, devote, uh, to come to dominate over narrow sectional interests. And different countries have achieved that to different degrees in different policy dimensions. And, but if you go country by country and look at the history, there are some key moments, I would, I would claim. There are different dimensions of that. Of course, the classic dimension would be the rich versus the poor, but it's also, of course, gender is an incredibly important issue, and there's been a lot of very interesting work in political economy on um, how you can change gender relations in politics. I've done some work myself on uh, gender quotas in Swedish politics where the Social Democratic Party in, introduced a 50% rule for women's representation in, in Sweden. Um, there's been work in development on, on, on reservations for women in Indian uh, 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 legislative institutions. There's new versus old production structures. One of the classic problems of, of, 
the political economy of development is how do you prevent vested interests who have an interest in maintaining the old economy from blocking economic change. So there are those kinds of dynamics between what you might call new and old production structures. And then within the literature, particularly on conflict, there's been a lot of focus on the role of ethnicity and whether ethnic tensions can cause uh, particular forms of conflict. When we think about that, we think about classic economic issues. We think about incentives. You know, what incentives do different groups have to behave in particular ways and how do those play out within a particular institutional framework? In other words, how do they play out in the electoral system? And one of the big questions is, can, do electoral systems give way to broad-based coalitions? In some countries, politics is intensely ethnic. In other countries, they've been built very much more broadly-based political parties that cut across ethnic lines. So what is that process by which the electoral system can encourage or discourage the formation of particular kinds of coalitions? How do legislative organization work? And what's, is there a role, I mentioned it earlier, for political reservation? A number of countries uh, have been toying with and even implementing some forms of favored representation for groups that have been traditionally disadvantaged. And the question is, does that work? And if so, how does it play out? There's the design of reg- legal and regulatory systems and effective state bureaucracies. All of these are key issues that if you're saying, can we say anything about what makes government work? It's going to come down to understanding, I would claim, in general, a lot of these things. One of the key issues that we, we, I think we've come to believe, and I think it's absolutely central to the study of development, is it, the world is very different when you think of it in these terms in, in, in a dynamic framework. What do I mean by a dynamic framework? When it's about the promotion of long-run investment decisions, either by the state or by private sector investment, then you get a very different look at the importance of these issues than if you just view it as a game of, say, pure redistribution between a set of citizens living at a point in time and trying to resolve that. Another issue is uh, down to achieving transparency and accountability. And one of the the themes that I pursued a lot in my own work, uh, at least a little while ago, and partly with Robin Burgess is here, is work on the role of the media and whether or not we can uh, talk about how it is that the media can be a more effective disciplining device on government decisions. Then there's questions around constitutional provision. Another really important set of issues, both in development and outside, and of course we're having a big debate, the so-called Brexit debate here, is where should the locus of power reside? Should it be local, regional, or supranational? So there's a whole series of very rich questions that really underpin the whole political economy literature, and this is just giving you a sense of what they are. I would say, and of course I would say it perhaps with a little self-affirming bias here, but, but it, that you know, the past 25 years, if I look back to that time when I was uh, sitting there uh, realizing we couldn't go on our field trip, uh, have we made progress? I think we have made a lot of progress. We've made progress on almost everything that I said now. Are we done? No, of course not. But in terms of actually having generated quite a significant body of knowledge that now gets taught routinely within economics. For example, LSE now has a political economy sequence taught to both our graduate students and our PhDs and our undergraduates. I think that wouldn't have been true 25 years ago. So this has changed the teaching curriculum within economics in in a very large number of places. What have we learned? We've learned a lot of empirical things. It's not been about theory, far from it. We've learned that political competition can have a real impact on incentives and who gets selected. 
So in places where there's very little competition, it looks like you get worse politicians selected, and that's something that's been found in a variety of contexts. We've learned that putting politicians under term limits can really affect their incentives. The guys who know they can't run again behave rather differently from guys who know that they can be re-elected. We know that reserving seats can change policy outcomes. You know, if you do start to empower particular groups, it can really have an effect on policy. We know that policy um, jurisdictional spillovers are important. There's now a very big literature on the way in which one jurisdiction's policy choices can affect those made elsewhere. Um, we know that presidential and parliamentary systems have very different policy outcomes. Um, I guess, you know, at, at a personal line here, if you say to me one thing I've learned and I'd be willing to defend, and I'm not going to defend for the rest of the lecture, it would be that you really, you really adopt a, a presidential system at your peril. Um, presidential systems work occasionally. I mean, you could say the U.S. is the example that everybody is uh, willing to defend. But by and large, what do you actually see in the world when um, people want to entrench their power? It's typically setting up a presidential system. Presidential systems work ra rather wonderfully well for individuals to become elected dictators in a way that parliamentary systems find it much harder to do. And if you look at the switch in institutional arrangements in parts of the world where democracy has been subverted, it's very often been through conversion of parliamentary into presidential systems. And we know that from a, quite a body of evidence that what happens in parliamentary and presidential systems just looks rather different. Levels of corruption in presidential systems is typically much higher than, than levels of corruption in parliamentary systems. Now, there's issues around where that, in, where that correlation comes from and so forth. Another thing we've learned is that auditing politicians can materially affect corruption. It really matters if we set up systems that, that, that are robust in, in a process of auditing. So we've learned lots of useful empirical knowledge, which is good news. These are just examples. Well, what I want to do in the last uh, ten minutes, can I, five, ten, five minutes, okay, five, it'll take care, is, is, to, is to briefly touch on three, three examples, and I'm really only going to do so briefly, you'll be relieved to hear, um, where I think we've made genuine progress bringing the tools that we developed to particular development questions. Um, the first is the study of conflict and violence. Um, until about 15 to 20 years ago, there was no field within development studying conflict and violence. That's been almost an entirely new area of study. Um, debate, debates about development and institutions, lots of hyperbole there, and I'll exercise a little bit of it in a minute. And finally, I'll talk about uh, political institutions and robust control very, very briefly. Um, and I want the, me the message I'm going to draw, and I'm going to do so quickly for each example, is it's really all about the executive constraints. Uh, in each instance, I'm going to make an argument that if you study any of these three things, the one thing you might take away from it is strengthening executive constraints is really the thing that matters. Conflict and violence, uh, say, almost non-existent 20 years ago, and, you know, the literature is mushroomed uh, within, within uh, development. And in particular, a focus on intrastate conflict, that there are one of the biggest prob development problems is trying to develop an economy in the shadow of a, uh, a serious internal conflict. If we think about what's going on in Syria now, I don't think you have to think for very long to realize that the problem of development in that context is just made very, very much more difficult. 
Now, this has now been studied quantitatively, uh, in particular by economists, and there are very strong correlations which people will overinterpret. One of the questions that's completely hopeless that everyone wants to think they can answer is, does conflict cause low growth or does low growth cause conflict? Well, again, I think uh, here we are among friends. We can all agree that that's not really ever going to be answered because there's really important and complex two-way relationships between what happens in the economy and the perpetuation of political violence and conflict and what happens uh, in the shadow of political economy and violence. Now, um, I'm going to skip this. Um, Why do political institutions matter here and why are they crucial? Well, one fact is we observe almost no conflict. Of course, this is not a fact that's necessarily causal. Indeed, it almost certainly isn't causal. We observe almost no conflict in any place that has evolved the strongest form of executive constraints. Of course, you could just reverse the causation and say, by the time you've got the strongest version of executive constraints, you've learned how to contain violence. So I'm not claiming that it's in any sense causal. But one set of issues around the way institutions prevent individuals from capturing the state is an absolutely crucial issue. Because a source of violence uh, in, in the world, I would say, is where one party is allowed to capture the state as a form of personal fiefdom um, and are unconstrained in their use of those state resources, either for the purposes of violence or for the purposes of redistribution. Um, and, uh, and executive constraints, I believe, are the key to that. But I've been able to persuade you not at all because I haven't had time to do that. Uh, next example, I told you I'm going to do these very quickly. Um, development and institutions. Um, there's a very uh, powerful line of work, and some of you will have bumped into it uh, by uh, uh, Asimoglu, Johnson, and Robinson, who very much um, ignited a, a range of debates that, that have affected the whole field of political economy and development. Um, I'll just cut to the chase and I'll show you a picture that, you know, uh, that my, inner, my inner nerd uh, tells me this is, a, this is a picture I could stare at all day. This is a quite a wonderful picture, uh, and I'll tell you what, it's, what it is. Um, because you can, you can what, why is it a wonderful picture? Because you can spend countless amounts of time conjecturing what's behind it and not reach any kind of conclusion. But by, that, by the point you haven't reached that conclusion, you've had a thousand really interesting thoughts. Um, what is, it? what is it? It's on the, on the horizontal axis is the log of population density in 1500 among countries that were colonized. And on the vertical axis is the log of their GDP per capita, their national income, in 1995. And there's a very strong negative relationship. So the places that were almost not at all populated in 1500 were places like Canada and Australia. And they're among the richest former colonies today. And the countries that um, uh, uh, were uh, highly populated, relatively speaking, like Rwanda in that period, are actually the poorest countries today. Now, what, what, what's this got to do with political economy? Well, if you ask these fellows, two very good friends of mine, uh, both of whom with very strong LSE connections, I should say. Jim Robinson on the left there was an undergraduate at the LSE and Darren Asimoglu is one of our PhD students, and they wrote this wonderful book, Why Nations Fail, that some of you will have read. Um, if you ask them, it's all about the way in which the initial conditions gave rise to particular forms of colonialism that then had persistent effects on the institutional framework. So in particular, in places that have very low population density, it was fairly straightforward to transplant the kinds of institutions that the settlers in those areas had grown accustomed to in their home environment. 
Whereas in places that were rather densely populated, you came up against populations that already had more established customs, which created much more friction and difficulty in establishing particular kinds of institutions. Now, you, don't have, you, you have to go read their, 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 their work to become persuaded or dissuaded on that particular proposition. But what they conclude from not just that work, but a variety of work, is that the real key, they're very much into the, into the, into the X factor here, the real key to understanding differences in income per capita across the world is via the extent to which they have created what they call inclusive rather than extractive institutions. Extractive institutions are those where the state is relatively unconstrained. Low executive constraints would be very much a symptom of that versus inclusive are those where there are sufficient constraints in place that really mean that rulers have much less capacity to govern in, in arbitrary ways. Now, I do have a, I, I'm going to be a little bit immodesty, but I do have a, a connection to this. It turns out that when I was in, with, with Jim and Darren on one occasion, we were at a conference in Buenos Aires, and they were working on their book. This is all corroborated, by the way. If you go back and read the footnotes in the book, you'll find out what I'm about to tell you is true. Um, and we were sitting, you know, in Buenos Aires, you get these little squares where people do tango dancing, and so we went to one of these bars in a little square, and we talked about their book. And uh, they said, we, we know we want to call one thing extractive institutions, and we don't have a name for the other, the alternative. And I said, what about inclusive institutions? And the... My sad contribution to the world is they, 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 they agreed, and that's what it became in their book thereafter. You will say they acknowledge that conversation in Buenos Aires as being the reason they did that. What's particularly annoying, I'm not telling this for any other reason, I, a couple of years later I was working on a book with Torsten Person where we wanted to have a similar concept, and I would have gladly called them inclusive institutions, but by that point they'd, I'd already given that away. Uh, <laughs> So we had to call them cohesive institutions to <laughs> differentiate our product. But I felt I'd really kind of given away a piece of my intellectual uh, 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 property at that point. Anyway, um, so be it. Um, there's come on the back of that a huge interest, and I'm going to, Ariane's looking concerned. I'm going to wrap up very soon. Um, a huge literature on looking at the historical origins of modern-day development, which comes very much through a story based in political economy. Okay, I'm going to skip all of this. This was all great stuff, but I'm afraid it's going to go. <laughs> final thing, and this is the final thing I want to talk about, um, is the way, so this, this will bring us right up to date, uh, I hope, uh, and I'll end on a kind of challenge for something I'm thinking about at the moment. Um, this is a pattern that a lot of people know about, uh, but has not been written about enough for my taste, so I'm writing about it more than enough for everybody. Um, is, is, this is a typical this comes out a number of ways. What is this? This is a plot of the distribution of growth rates separated by two groups of countries. Um, and, and this is looking only within countries. So it's saying it's looking at the growth rate deviating from the country's own mean during periods of strong and weak executive constraints. So the red curve is what happens in countries with weak executive constraints. And the blue curve is what happens in countries with strong executive constraints. Well, what, what could you possibly learn from this? Well, the thing you should learn from this is if you look at where all the big growth spurts happen, they tend to happen in countries with weak executive constraints. But equally, where do all the growth disasters happen? They tend also to happen in countries with weak executive constraints. What it appears is if you get strong executive constraints, it looks like you're kind of buying a kind of insurance. You're getting less of the good stuff and perhaps less of the bad stuff, but you're kind of getting a less risky outcome. 
Okay, that's the thing I'd like you to believe, but I wouldn't be able to argue it just without going any further. Now, this got me thinking when I knew about this picture, how do we think about what's going on here and how do we think about it in particular in the context of debates that are going on about China right now? Um, there's an idea that has gotten into economic policy analysis, which I think is relevant to this, but hadn't really got into the political economy literature. And it's something that comes out of actually mainly or aeronautical engineering as a field and has actually influenced some macroeconomists. And it's the idea of robust control. The idea being when we design systems, we don't generally, if we're designing an aircraft, design it on the basis of some form of average performance. We're not actually interested in the mean performance of aircraft. I mean, it's not mean at all, but we're most interested in some of the bounds. And in particular, we're often interested in lower bounds. Um, how is it, if we have a robust system, how bad can it be under a particular form of robust system? And a lot of work that's done on, for example, looking at systems within engineering looks at not just average outcomes, but often lower bounds. Can you insure yourself against very bad outcomes? Now, what we've been doing in some of the, the work on this is to think of political institutions in a similar way. Can some configurations of political institutions work like a kind of robust control mechanism to prevent some of the worst outcomes? There might be a cost to the system. You might get, eliminate some of the very uh, good outcomes, but at least on out, you, you'll probably insure yourself against the bad outcomes. Well, there's a way of thinking about executive constraints precisely in those ways. Of course, they're taking away policy discretion. We don't necessarily want our politicians who are making key decisions to be able to make them without subject to the law or subject to what the legislature will go along with. And that may mean that sometimes very good acts of discretion are missed. But equally, it may also mean that some forms of major policy errors are also eliminated. So we can create a more stable and, uh, policy environment. It then appears if you look within countries, I'm not going to do that because it'll take too long to explain. If you look within countries, one thing you see, I'll just say it verbally, is when countries, if you look at the growth, the, 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 the growth and productivity shocks that countries face, there does appear to be quite a big reduction in volatility around the adoption of um, strong executive constraints in the data. Well, this creates a big debate. I mean, at the moment, we're seeing a period of what could be footnote-level volatility in China or could turn out to be something that we, in years to come, think it was uh, a canary in the mine and telling us something about the ability of a particular kind of regime to handle certain forms of volatility. It'll be a while till we know the answer to that. Um, and there's now quite, quite a lot being written on the form that China, the challenges that China is facing in particular in relation to some of the scandals that have happened and the corruption and other, other issues. Um, there's a real interesting question. If you look at um, uh, South Korea and Taiwan, um, they have both countries that have significantly reformed their political institutions towards much more inclusive institutions. They've adopted stronger executive constraints. I think in this debate, elections are a sideshow. I really don't think engaging in a debate about whether it's good or bad to have elections is that important. What really matters is do you establish independent judicial institutions and do you establish a genuine system of uh, legislative oversight which would allow the decisions of a ruling executive to be overruled by legislative authority? And when does that matter? When does the rubber really hit the road? Well. One view is the rubber hits the road when you're subject and buffeted to particular kinds of shocks because you have to work your way through it in a much more collective way. Now, 
I've, I've written a number of things on China. One of my favorite papers, uh, just for the title, is something called Making Autocracy Work, um, which was about why I think China has actually evolved a rather effective system of a kind of second-best approach to executive constraints. So in other words, it's not true that China does not have executive constraints. They're just of a rather unconventional kind. But that doesn't mean that there's a new paradigm out there. Anybody who lived through the... Um, through the financial crisis is very wary of using terms like new paradigm and believing there's another and alternative way to do things. I'm not saying there isn't, but one would be at least skeptical of that claim. So I'll leave you with that thought. So here's an up-to-the-minute thought in political economy of development. We really are thinking about questions about how do you design and think about what the institutional environment is that will promote development. And uh, I think it's fair to say... Um, that I think Arthur Lewis, given his approach to studying issues, might have been reasonably happy with developments. It's been very narrative-based, evidence-based, and around, I think, a series of pretty important questions that we as economists now can engage in debates about that, frankly, I think are things that we, we couldn't engage as intelligently as we can now had it not been for the developments that have happened in the field. So thank you very much. So we do have time for questions. You have to be as quick as Tim because we're running out of time. Uh, do you take them from there, Tim? It is I'm Nick. happy to stay here. It's probably easier than trying to. Okay. Thank you. Uh, thank you. It's Nick, Nick Stern down oh, here. Oh, Nick. I was, I was looking. <laughs> um, thank you very much, Tim. That was enormously thoughtful. Um, I wanted to pick up something which you touched on but didn't develop. I mean, you, you mentioned uh, and did taught us much and have taught us much about the consequences of different kinds of structures and systems. Now, in your, this particular case of emphasis, the nature of the uh, constraints on the executive. Um, since the rules and structures are so important, it, you're led then to ask, well, how do, how do they change? How do they change right. in radical ways? And there your 19th century political economy was in large measure about that. That's what Marx was writing about, and those of us who are 20 years older, um, we had to read that uh, along with Arrow and De Bruyne or that sort of thing. And so that process by which endogenously uh, institutional structures are challenged and through crisis change does seem to me to be a very important line of argument whether or not you buy the story within Marx of how those uh, pressures actually build up to crisis. And if you look at you know, very big change in ownership structures like nationalization, I mean, that came in large measure out of the Second World War in, uh, in much of Europe. So another crisis that produced radical change. Magna Carta presumably arose in pretty similar kind of circumstances. So I wondered if you could share some of your thoughts on how endogenously and otherwise um, the radical change in those things which seem so important in determining outcomes occur. Yeah. Okay, I'll very briefly talk about because actually it was in the, some of the slides I didn't talk about. Um, let me, um, in a way, let me flip the other way thing around. What, one thing that you could be surprised about is how persistent things are in, the, in, in light of um, 
potentially there being better ways of doing things. So, so, so if, if you go back to the sort of classic economic paradigm of policy advice, we think of better ways to do things, and then we say, why not, why not make the world change in the way it should? The question is, therefore, why, why we don't see the change and, therefore, what it takes to make the change. If you say, well, why aren't we seeing change? We must have some theory of, of change. And that's something that um, a lot of the research is you know, currently focused on. Um, so one, one way of, of, of making change or, or, or understanding why change happens is thinking about the powers of um, elites and their interests. So, so very much, the, I think the history of change in Britain towards more inclusive institutions, however defined, had a lot to do with the influence of the French Revolution and the way, therefore, in which elites changed their perceptions of their responsibilities, probably dragged kicking and screaming. I don't know, I wasn't there at the time, but I would think that there was an evo- a real recognition that many of the customs and practices, so there was a kind of over foreign influence. And, and if you look at actually a lot of episodes of institutional change, the power of, of foreign influences is often in, in important in, in making that change or changes in the values of, of elites and the way they perceive their responsibilities. Um, so there's some work, for example, on foreign education and institutional change that's been where people have looked at whether people who are educated in countries which, with certain kinds of institutions appear to go back and change the institutions in their, in their home countries having experienced what goes on. So there's a process of changing um, elite, elite opinion um, and, and I think that's, that's rather important. But then there's also, a, a, if, you, if you read your sort of Asimoglu and, and, and Robinson perspective, they talk about critical junctures there are moments within the history of particular countries where you have to work in that moment to make the change because there are going to be times. So, so one example, actually, which the International Growth Center here, I think, is well aware of, in, 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 if you're trying to work with a country to make change, there will be moments like a new government where you can really think now is the time to try and work with a new government to try and have an agenda of reform, and that would include policy reform, but it could include institutional reform. So I think there are moments where one identifies that it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an apposite moment to, to, make, those, to make, those, uh, make those changes. The, the, the sort of sad truth around the world is there are two events that I have studied myself that do seem to make a big difference. One is the impact of wars, either winning them or typically losing them on institutions. Uh, losing wars is highly correlated with institutional change in the data. Uh, again, what you make of that and what you think. It doesn't mean that we go out and say a recipe is to promote more war to get more institutional change, but it is, it is one of the defining moments. The other, though, which is slightly more promising, and if you think of a country like Zimbabwe, I suppose it, it, it's, uh, it's opposite, is you, the, the death of autocratic leaders. Uh, we call them resilient leaders. These are leaders who, who live long enough to die in office um, are often moments of institutional change. Um, it's something, it says something about a country to have, I mean, there's been a lot of work on leader deaths, but actually for a leader to survive long enough to die in office, sometimes it's a tragic death of a young leader, but quite often it's the death of a, an old autocrat. And again, those provide those critical moments, and you do see quite strong 
um, effects, empirical effects on institutional change following the deaths of autocratic leaders. So, you know, in the case of Zimbabwe, if you think about that as a, as a problem, um, then the answer's got to be to wait, presumably, until you know, Mugabe eventually goes, and, and that will be a critical moment at which there's a, there can be a dialogue on institutional change that, that could perhaps come after that. The thing that's really hard and, and, and but, but fun from an academic point of view is thinking about this dynamics of culture and norms that I was talking about. Can we really say anything about how those evolve over time? If you read what political scientists have written, think of Almond and Verber or Sam Huntington or any of these quite, power, quite prominent political scientists, they put a lot of weight on value change being accompanying political change, that you need to have a process of value change accepting of certain democratic principles ahead of any kind of institutional change. And if you think about the Arab Spring, the attempts in some countries where it was successful, many people will say there was not that process of value change that preceded the institutional change, and that's why we've seen the reversals. You know better than I do what the experience was in in Eastern Europe, places where there were attempts to establish democratic institutions but then clear reversals. That was often, the story is often told that the values of the society and the values of the political elites were not there. So there's a lot of interesting things. As you can tell, I'm slightly waffling, but there's a lot of work going on to try and answer and think about that. Not quite as grand, sadly, as the sort of Marxist uh, overthrow of the bourgeoisie or anything, but often the subtext is similar. How do you change fundamentally the structures in a society for the better? Thank you. I think there was a question. The gentleman just next. Hi, thank you. Um, I was wondering, you talked a lot about constraints on the executive, and your point is well taken. Uh, but you also talked about um, how important it is to um, take care that um, old interests don't stop new reforms, uh, new processes, and everything like that. And um, I was wondering if you don't uh, think that uh, part of the measure, part of what you talk about when you talk about constraints on the executive is about those very interests and, and how perverse their effect can be. And I'm thinking, for instance, of, um, say, say, the American Congress and how it is a powerful constraint on the American executive, but it's also... It's, it has also stopped uh, important reforms that the executive, that an accountable executive wanted to, to enact. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a very good point. It goes a little bit to my final point, which I know I, I, I expressed in a rather rushed way, uh, about the sort of upside and downside of executive constraints. Uh, so if you could design an ideal system of executive constraints, you don't want it to get in the way of what you say good policy reform. Um, I mean, it's interesting how many of the attempts to overturn what you might call some somewhat progressive American policies have come through challenges in the Supreme Court because people realize that's the ultimate constraint on the executive. If you could prove that Obamacare was, uh, in fact, unconstitutional, you would get rid of it in a, in a stroke. So, uh, And the same goes with gun control or any of the, the examples that people tend to use when they talk about that in, in a U.S. context. Um, and, and so, so you know, if, if one is thinking of this in grand architectural terms, you have to then think about how you would um, design a set of enabling institutions that would not allow you to become too embroiled in 
the downside of, of constraints. So an example, actually, which comes out of the, the LSE Growth Commission, which Nick, Nick was also involved in, is we recommended for Britain that we should have this new body called the National Infrastructure Commission, partly because of the way that the parliamentary process was governing in the UK um, infrastructure projects. So it's proven to be too much, we, we, we argued too much status quo bias, not enough long-term thinking. So in that's an instance where we said you need a new institution. You need to set something up that isn't outside. I mean, ultimately, it's accountable to Parliament. It can't be other than that. But by taking the decisions out of daily politics and putting them into a strategic body, you can somewhat anticipate um, some of the difficulties of dealing with the political process. Whether this will succeed, we'll only know in, in time. So I think one, one, one wants to get that balance then right between these enabling inst institutions. And in fact, in the, in the US... There are, you know, example. I mean, the way the Fed operated in the crisis was very interesting because they were able to operate entirely without reference to Congress. I think the last thing that they would, that, that Ben Bernanke would ever want to have done, would be to try and get any of the measures the Fed was trying to support through the Congress, because almost certainly it would have been impossible. So, you know, the U.S. did manage to have a fair amount of um, policy uh, activism but working within a set of, in, broadly, a set of institutions. Of course, um, the first attempt by Hank Paulson to, to put through his TARP was voted down by Congress, but once people saw the consequences of that, they quickly rallied around and passed something very quickly. So, you know, the, the, but there will be, yeah, there, there can come a point where you've over-constrained power or you've created coalitions that are blocking, I agree, but one then needs to think about creatively about how to work around that without necessarily dismantling fundamental principles, which is the sovereignty of a legislature and a system of law. You know, but you can just still do quite a lot without compromising that. Great. One last question at the back. Can you introduce yourself before? Thank you. Um, uh, my name is Sami, I'm a PhD student. Thank you so much for the informative presentation. Um, I would like to hear your views about, like, institutional-wise, what happened yesterday in the U.S. where both presidential candidates, uh, uh, the extreme, I guess, uh, on both sides, won with a great margin in the primaries uh, in a very small, well-educated state. Uh, how do you see, like, the picture? Okay, well, I, 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 the risk I say way, way too in, many injudicious things, which of course you would be lighter by. But um, <laughs> let me tell, let me tell you a story. Um, back when I was a student, um, Ronald Reagan was elected. Now, you, you don't remember that. Uh, all of you, most of you, were not born when Ronald Reagan was elected. <laughs> I remember it very well because that the evening we were all coming back from the pub because, of course, it was you know the time difference. We didn't know Ronald Reagan was elected until well into into the day. And we went back, there was a group of us, went back to someone's room, and we spent the whole evening convinced there was going to be nuclear war. We were absolutely <laughs> convinced. This was like, there was no other corollary. You, you, know, you, you would put a guy in office, and, and clearly this guy was a buffoon. I mean, it was the perception. And this was a dangerous buffoon who now had his finger on a nuclear button. Um, now, it turns out that that characterization was quite incorrect. It's because we didn't understand the nature of American institutions, I think, and if you actually look what Ronald Reagan did 
You know, it's not that I'm a champion for Ronald Reagan in any way, shape, or form, but some of the things he did, he worked within the context of the institutions that existed. Particularly, he passed one of the best and most sensible tax reforms in the history of the United States. Um, uh, and, uh, and where that came from, I doubt he was like rushing off and reading MBER discussion papers and working out the optimal form of taxes or anything, but he was seeking advice from people who clearly were able to provide advice within a context and getting the coalition within Congress together to pass that tax reform. And I think it's a story, and I don't know whether there's a parallel today, I'm not going to say, with thinking about individuals and then thinking about individuals in the context of the institutions they operate within. And a really robust system is one where it's not quite you could have anybody where with their finger on the button, that might be an extreme, uh, extreme uh, characterization, but the system should, as a whole needs to be robust. So at some level, you know, whoever gets elected in November, I, I, you know, there'll be differences, and I'm sure you know, there'll be some people who think it's better or worse having X or Y. But at the end of the day, I think we would exaggerate mightily what the consequences would be if we really li listened to anything that's said in any, con in any candidate debate at this point. And that's precisely because it's a very evolved and developed institutional framework in which they operate. Okay, so we do have time for a bonus question. Is the gentleman here in the middle? It's as hard as he gets to reach. Um, thank you. Thank you very much for your talk. I was, uh, I was a student under Arthur Lewis many, many years ago at Manchester University and then went out and became a development economist for about 40 years. And I think much of what you say is absolutely correct. The mistake I think that we made in the 50s and 60s was to assume that the public sector was benign and efficient. I'm afraid in most countries it falls far short of those objectives. Now, uh, what I found actually in so many countries working, that, that the real conflict actually was tended to be urban against rural or rural against urban and I just wonder if you could comment on that because you didn't actually mention that, although I mean I entirely agree with you that these sectoral conflicts and institutional ones are, are all important in understanding the way a country develops. Thank you. Yeah, I, um, of course to, to answer that question in, in the abstract and, and without thinking about specific countries and their experiences would, would, would be problematic. Um, what, what, I, what I think is, 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 is right in, in what, you, what you say is that if you look at the dynamics of the political economy of a number of countries, that, that urban-rural political divide was um, extremely important in the way that particular policy format, formulation um, uh, uh, played out. Let me ma mention one particular country since for various reasons I, I has a, a personal connection and that's the case of Ghana which of course is also relevant because A, um, Nkrumah was a student at LSE and um, uh, Arthur Lewis was an advisor to Nkrumah in the early um, period after Ghanaian independence um, uh, and it has a, a number of personal connections where I won't go into. One, one of which, though, um, and, and this will come back to your question in a second, was one of the, one, the, in the last week of the development economics course that I took when I was an undergrad, um, you had to write a, a country essay, which actually I think was a rather good thing to do. You had to go and research one country and to analyze what had gone on in that country and then write an essay about that country's development experience. And because of the personal connections I had, I chose Ghana. Um, and uh, I read a really excellent book, which I still recommend to people by 
Tony Killick called Development Economics in Action, um, which was really about the sort of the first initial period of the Nkrumah regime and the attempt to develop the economy. And very much at the heart of some of the political economy of that was the urban-rural divide, the reliance in particular on the cocoa sector, which was a rural sector as a source of taxation, at the same time as trying to favor the urban sector and build heavy industry, um, basically as a form of taxation on the rural sector, a kind of classic urban-rural political divide. It's the only case I can ever remember when, kind of as I sat and read, um, I, I did actually feel that sort of tears coming to my eye. I mean, it's an incredibly moving story to see an economy. So my fa- I have a personal question because my father was based there for a number of years around the point of independence, and um, him telling me what a great place it was. And, and I went back there, I was in there in the mid-80s, and you couldn't drive five meters without going around a pothole. I mean, the roads had deteriorated. The telephones, which worked perfectly in 1963, um, were, uh, by that point, you couldn't make a telephone call. Um, the only way to make appointments in governments to go there in person and hope you could actually find the person there. Um, there was no hotel uh, of any, you know, you could stay in a guest house, but Typically, there was no, you know, you didn't know whether there was any, going to be any food on the table for breakfast. I mean, it had deteriorated to, to that point. So there had been this amazing development decline. In, in, uh. Now, I think at the heart of some of these stories was the failure to have a coherent urban-rural settlement that meant that, you know, this part of where it went wrong was exactly as you described, some of the urban-rural um, um, politics. By the way, the one thing I don't, the message, just something you said, and I'll say this probably is my last thing, that I, I don't want you to take away from this, is a kind of view of a hopelessness of, of government intervention. I actually think in many ways it's the opposite conclusion. Um, I believe more strongly in the possibility of effective government intervention than I did when I believed in the benevolent government model because I believe the narrative I can develop that's persuasive for that is actually much better than the one that I would have been able to create had I simply said, I'm going to show you a good policy, now it's up to you to implement it. Because my obligation isn't to show you a good policy, it's also to say, what is the institutional fabric that guarantees that policy is really delivered? And that makes a much more persuasive case for government than actually it does when you aren't able or don't make that extra step. So I'm actually much more, if you look at the history of Western Europe and other places that have evolved quite incredible systems of effective government, you know, if you think about the provision of health care, pensions, transfers to prevent poverty. These are amazing achievements of government, and they've been made because the institutional fabric was in place. So actually, I think the message from this is really much more empowering government, but realizing the only way you can do that is to think very carefully about what it is that makes government work and to hope that we can do something to transmit that message to parts of the world where government isn't working as well as it does in in the places where it works. Thank you. I think we can all...